As I was driving over here this morning, I was pondering just the, the task of preaching this morning. And uh, was just freshly reminded of the privilege it is. Um, and the privilege it is to preach to you guys, Risen Hope Church, um, your family, your friends. Um, grateful for that. And just commend you for, the reason I know this is because just having conversations after sermons, but just the way you guys lean into sermons, the way you lean into listening to God's word, the way you lean into applying God's word, um, and wanting to be not only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Um, and so I just want to commend you for that, and I'm grateful. I don't understand why I get to preach. Uh, it's a gift to be able to bring God's word to you this morning. It's a joy, it's a privilege, Um, but let me go ahead and and pray for us this morning. Lord, we we come to you, as has been brought up several times, I've heard it this morning, just as our shepherd, you are our shepherd, we shall not want, you lead us by streams of water, by green fields that we might lie down. So Lord, would you do that this morning? Would we come to your word and be satisfied with the stream that satisfies our soul of the food that Jesus, you said, eat of me and you will be satisfied, the true bread of life. So would that be us this morning? And we come to you joyfully with that task, Lord. Thank you that you are the good shepherd. Lord, would you lead us in paths of righteousness for your namesake, for your glory, Lord? And we thank you that you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. Lord, even though the world about us, the sin within us, and the devil are all after for our destruction, they've been brought to their knees by the cross. And so we sit here to feast, to dine in the presence of our enemies because you are a great shepherd, a great savior who has conquered all those things. So Lord, may we, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, fear no evil, Lord, and we know that surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. As Spurgeon talks about, you are the hound of heaven and your grace and your mercy are hounding after us every day. So we come to you with gratefulness, thankfulness for our mercies that are new this morning, thankfulness for your kindness to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, don't look now, but it is January 15th. We are halfway through January. If that's not crazy, I don't know what is. It just flies by, but it doesn't seem like that long ago, it really wasn't that long ago, that we had Christmas. And during your Christmas celebration, I'm sure there's some point where you had a time where we do this every year, where you give gifts, whether it's Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. My family does it Christmas Eve. I know we're a little odd like that, probably. Um, But we do it Christmas Eve, and I'm sure for every family, or at least friend group, you've got someone that's just like really good at giving gifts. So you probably have someone in your mind. It's just the person that like every year, they, ha- they somehow know exactly what you're thinking. It's like they read your Amazon wish list on what to get. And they get it for you. And you're like, how did you know? And they're like, I know you. And so I know how to, how to get you good gifts. One person that is not giving, good at giving gifts is uh, Jake Wright. Where's Jake? The reason, the reason I poke fun at him is we had a... Uh, White Elephant Gift Exchange, and I got the worst gift, and it was from Jake. Like, literally everything was good, and then, where's Allie? As a single guy, I got the worst gift. Like, you didn't want to get it as a single guy. It was a bunch of married couples. Um, but anyways, so I, I poke fun. I need, a, I need a shirt that's like, warning, if you're my friend, you might be in an illustration, or something like that. But either way, every family, every friend group's got the, the people that are really good at giving gifts. But have you ever thought about what makes a good receiver of gifts. What makes a good receiver of gifts? Oh, there's Jake. He totally missed it. He just came out of the bathroom. I think he's getting debriefed on 
the joke about him. Either way, a good receiver of gifts. I think we know it intuitively. Just like we know who's good at giving gifts, we know intuitively what it means to be a good receiver of gifts, right? They're not like greedy. Think of the greedy child on Christmas morning that can't wait for Christmas Day and they forget anyone else in the world exists and they get a present, they just shred it open, they look at it, they set it down, they're like, wait, I want the next one. And you're like, whoa, 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 you just opened the present, right? They're greedy. They're, they're consumed with their desires. And then you've got the opposite, the indifferent kid. You know, the kid who gets down, maybe it's a teen or something, who goes down Christmas morning, goes and looks at their gifts and is like, pops in their earbuds and is like, yeah, that's cool, you know, whatever, the whole time. And you're just like, man, I want you to enjoy this gift, but they're indifferent. Or you've got another one, a dramatic undeserving Maybe this isn't even on Christmas morning. Maybe this is like, you know, you go out for lunch and try to pay for someone's meal. And they're like, no, 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 man, I don't deserve it. Like, don't give me. And you're like, can you please just take this gift? Like, take it. But they're like, no, I don't deserve it. Right? That's not good ways to receive gifts. So what makes a good receiver of gifts? What does that look like? Well, a couple things. Not everything, but here's a couple things. They're humble. Right? So this is the kid that gets up on Christmas morning goes downstairs and is like, thank you, mom and dad. Like, I don't deserve these gifts, but I can't wait to open them, right? They're humble. And then they open them and they look at them and they assess them and they're like, thank you, mom and dad, for these gifts. They're intentional. They don't just bypass you as the giver. They look at you and they say, thank you, thank you, mom and dad, right? And even if it's a gift that like, they're not, maybe it wasn't what they wanted, but it's something they needed. You know, we all were those kids when we got like underwear, clothes or whatever. It's something you need, but you don't really want. But even then, a good receiver of gifts is going to enjoy receiving the gift for the sake of enjoying the giver, right? So they're going to look at that gift and say, okay, I need this. My desires maybe weren't for this, but I, I, I'm so thankful. Like, thank you. And they want them to feel appreciated by the way they receive the gifts, but there's also another way of receiving gifts that is right and good. It's beyond the normal. It's not the norm. It's not the thing you do every time. But it's this. Imagine little Johnny, right, is desperately waiting for his first bike. You know, everyone had that feeling of first bike years. And you've got it for him. So you have it all set up, right? He opens all his presents, and then you've got it in the garage hiding away. So you run him out. He runs out there. He opens it. He's thrilled to death, and he's everything. He's humble. He's thankful. He's appreciative. He's looking at you and saying, Mommy, Daddy, thank you so much for this gift. I don't deserve it, but I'm so grateful for it, right? And he goes outside, and he's like, Can you teach me how to ride? And you're teaching him how to ride his bike. But then imagine this. After a couple hours of that, he looks at you and says, Mommy, Daddy, I am so grateful for this gift. But do you know what I enjoy more than even this bike? I enjoy you. And this is where all the leaders are like, aww, right? I enjoy you. And I'm going to set aside this gift for a little while that I might spend time with you. Imagine how that would melt your heart, right? Melt us. But friends, this is fasting, right? Follow me. It's giving up one of God's good gifts for a moment, right? It's not the norm, but it's giving up God's good gift for a moment so that we might delight in God, the source of everything good. So it's giving up one of God's good gifts for a moment so that we might delight in God, the source of everything good. Right? We've been in this reset series. We've talked about time, priorities, money, and now we're addressing from the Bible fasting. And next week, it will be rest. Right? We're honing in on applications of the time and priorities, spending time with God and fasting. These actually help us reset everything else. And to help us grasp biblical fasting, I think we need to think well about the gifts of God, the flesh, the darkness of the flesh, and then we'll go to fasting itself. So you'll, you'll have to follow me along this journey. There's going to be a lot of slides, um, and then I'll have you turn to a couple texts. The three points for today are the goodness of God and his gifts, 
the darkness of the flesh, and then fasting as a feast. And as a disclaimer, I owe much credit to John Piper and his book, A Hunger for God. Highly recommend it. Uh, Mike actually thinks it's one of Piper's best works, and I would agree. It's definitely up there um, in his communication and just everything about the book. Extremely helpful, extremely convicting, and a lot of this sermon was based on that. Um, So I want to give credit where credit is due. Point number one, the goodness of God and his gifts, like water. (laughs) Based on Genesis 1 through 2, we know that God made everything good, right? And this is in manner with his nature, for he himself is good. So we see the refrain over and over and over in Genesis. Just read the first couple chapters of Genesis. It is good, it is good, it is good. And Colossians, speaking of Jesus, says that all things were created through him and for him, and everything, everything is held together by him. God and his goodness created all. Things that are good, right? And everything is in this. So steak, broccoli, beaches, dogs, trees, seasons, every material thing used for construction and technology. The universe from molecule to galaxy far, far away is made good, right? But in a moment, sin erupts through the twisted desires of Adam and Eve, right? They reject the gifts of God, right? He had lavishly poured on them the Garden of Eden, having dominion over all creation. They say, no, that's not enough. I've got to go search for other things, right? And they choose death instead. Author Andrew Wilson writes, their eyes move from the abundance all around them to the one thing God hasn't given them. They desire it, they eat, they die. The fall is what happens when we think God's gifts aren't good enough. And in that moment, all the good gifts of the garden that God had given them are subjected to corruption and death. Romans 8.20 says that creation was subjected to futility is the word that it uses. What does that mean? I think in part, death, corruption, pain, rot, deformity, right, entropy, crops die, horses break a leg and have to be put down, our favorite dog gets run over by a car, right? And creation 8 says that all, sorry, Romans 8 says that all of creation longs for the day when itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So is creation, the gift of God for man, still good in the meantime? Right? In the here and now? Well, before the day of hope that awaits us in all of creation... The Bible makes it clear that God's gifts are still good, friends. God's gifts are still good. They are not less holy or unholy, right? They declare the glory of God even now. 1 Timothy 4, 4, Paul writes, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And these texts, they're post-fall, right? They're after the fall of mankind. All creation is good. And then taking these two texts and the whole of Scripture, I would say that by extension, unless creation is perverted by man, Things created by man are good as well. So all that God has given us is good, right? Every food, drink, plant, pet, resource, house, car, PlayStation, TV are good. And right now, I get it. Going through your head is all the possibilities of what could be bad, (laughs) right? You're trying to think of all the exceptions. Take, for example, marijuana. Right? Okay, what about marijuana? Is marijuana is bad, right? You're not saying it's, yes, marijuana is bad, right? Cannabis plant, the plant that God created, is actually really useful. It's useful for oils and beauty products, right? It can, be, it can make rope and paper. 
It's when we use, the, when mankind uses the THC to create a substance that has control over us instead of the Holy Spirit having control over us that makes it perverted and sinful to use, right? Or think of a PlayStation. You're like, well, PlayStation, maybe you disagree with PlayStation. Well, yes, it may be wise to not have a PlayStation in your house. Parents, you totally have the prerogative to decide that. But it's not the PlayStation that's evil, right? There's a sense of creativity with it that God has made as good as we as have made a PlayStation, but it's the misuse of the PlayStation, right? It's when we take and pervert things. Friends, as we look closely, we'll see the problem is not the object. The problem is the twisted heart of mankind and how we pervert the use of creation. But rejecting creation as bad itself is not the answer. That's not what fasting is doing. Fasting is not rejecting creation as bad. And why is this important? Because the reality is that we are going to play PlayStation, we're going to go to the beach, drink coffee, do school, eat food, watch TV, and none of it is going to be connected to worship if we get this wrong. None of it. It's going to be off in its own side lane of, I don't really know what to do with this fear of my life. And none of it is going to be connected to worship if we don't realize that it is to be received with thanksgiving from our good God, right? We're called to eat and drink and whatever we do is to be done to the glory of God. We'll have a deformed view of God himself. We'll be like the kid on Christmas who is so prideful, they never thank the giver for their gifts. That's how we'll live our lives. But in the greater context of 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, Paul writes in verses 1 through 5, he says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars who consciences are seared, who, get this, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So notice part of being deceived, right, is rejecting God's good gifts. And what is the antidote, the opposite? Receiving them with thanksgiving. And this gets at holiness is not related to food, days, drinks, or anything in creation. Paul makes this clear in Colossians as well. It's not about not eating or eating, right? Holiness doesn't come from those simply alone. Holiness comes through what? Being made holy by the word of God in prayer. Right? And then as we see as well, fasting. And just know, have you ever thought about why we pray before we eat? Like have you ever just taken a minute to think about it? Right? Contrary to common opinion, praying before you eat will not turn a Cheeto into a carrot as it enters your stomach. And right now you're all laughing because it all brought up a memory of a quote from uh, who's a Tim Hawkins has a skit on praying. And go watch it, the video, it's hilarious. But I think he's getting at something, right? He's, he's joking about how we pray before we eat, and he's like, you know, we start off with, Lord, please bless this food to the nourishment of, nourishment of my body. You know, as we're eating Dr. Pepper and Cheetos, please make this Cheeto turn into a carrot as it goes into my stomach. And he's just, it's really funny because it, it, it brings to reality a point. We're, we're praying for nourishment from a Cheeto and Dr. Pepper. Not sure how this is going to work. And he's like, Lord, please make a miracle happen. You know, make it turn into something healthy. But he gets at something. Right? He's poking fun, but I think he truly gets at something that's wrong with us and the way we pray. How often are we dishonoring the Lord in how we pray? Because when we're praying for our food, it's completely thoughtless and just rote words. It's just ritualistic, right? We're like the kid on Christmas who doesn't really care that it's from God, so we just give platitudes rather than true thankfulness for our food, right? The 
The praying around eating should be to receive the food with thankfulness as from God himself. It's a relational reception of his gifts as from God, right? It's not a ritual. It's relational reception of his gifts. So friends, in general, how are you at receiving God's gifts? Are you the man who's too prideful to receive because you think life is up to you to provide? So dependent on your own willpower and your strength? Are you the woman who feels guilty for sin in the past? So gifts become transactional, right? You don't really want them to be given to you because you feel guilty. You feel like you have to reject good things to somehow earn pleasure back with God. Or you want to earn them, you want to pay for them to God. Maybe you're like the kid who totally forgets that their parents even exist because the things that you have in your life rule your life. The Lord recently convicted me of kind of that last point, of just how mindless I can be when it comes to receiving God's gifts. Man, I can just go through a day where I'm given so many things, right? And I don't even take the time to acknowledge that it came from God. Right? If we truly believe what the Bible says and it is a gift from God, we're receiving all these things, but we're not really receiving them. We're just taking them. We're like the kid, I'm like the kid on Christmas who forgets his parents exist and just receive and take and take the presents. Right? Try giving thanks to the Lord. It changes everything. It changes the way you see life. The Lord has been gracious to, to work in my heart. So right, try taking a moment from anything. Food, Coke Zero, piece of gum. When you're using your car, going on a run, you're thankful for your legs to run. Right, It's a gift to you from God. It is a good gift to you from God. Right, Everything has that stamped on it. Everything from God to you as a personal gift. And when we receive God's gifts rightly, we're pointed back to the giver, which is the goal of the gifts. C.S. Lewis uses the analogy of following the sunbeams back to the sun. So we follow the sunbeams back to the sun. And friends, God himself to his people is the ultimate gift, right? He is the ultimate gift. A verse read many times during Christmas. I read it as well up here from this pulpit. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, Isaiah 9.6. Andrew Wilson again writes, The original Christmas present, wrapped in muslins and rags rather than decorative paper, does not merely come to give. He is himself a gift, the gift, the most outlandish demonstration of love that God could possibly offer. The most outlandish demonstration of love that God could possibly offer. Right? This son that was given, he had to purchase our place in his presence as well. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Friends, we are the ones who rejected God's good gift and he gave the greatest gift. And we killed him on a cross. And Jesus did all this willingly so that whoever repents and believes in him might have God himself that we might enjoy him as the greatest gift. And this is why we fast. We want him more than any other good gift. We want him more than anything else. Piper writes, Normally we meet God in his good gifts and turn every enjoyment into worship with thanksgiving. But from time to time, we need to test ourselves to see if we have begun to love his gifts in place of God. 
right? To test ourselves to see if we've begun to love his gifts in the place of God. Point number two, the darkness of the flesh. Turn with me to Luke 14. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 20. the darkness of the flesh. Luke 14, verses 16 through 20 is where we'll be. It's a parable. And many of us are familiar with this parable. It's about a man who offers a banquet and sends out invitations and how people responded to those invitations. Jesus says, A man once gave a great banquet, invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I need to go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Friends, notice how mundane and ordinary and good the excuses are that the people give as to why they can't come to the banquet. They're like, sorry, I'm sleeping around over here. I, I, I. No, they're married. He's got a wife. Proverbs says that's a gift from the Lord. Oxen and fields were their livelihood. Imagine your job. Like, that's how they're going to provide. Right? They're providing for the family. They need fields. These are the excuses they use not to go to the banquet. Piper writing on this text writes, The greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, when God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen, and a wife. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of the earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. I think Piper hits on a nerve, doesn't he? Right? Piper, are you saying that my Apple Pie, my Netflix, my Instagram, Facebook games, are you saying they're bad? Is this what Jesus is saying in the text? Samuel, you just argued for how all these things are good. Right? The example Jesus gives, land, oxen, spouse, we know those to be good gifts from the Lord from the text we've looked at. They're to be received with thankfulness. Apple pies as well. What is, what is Jesus getting at? He's getting at the problem lies not with the gift, but with our hearts problem lies not with the gift, but with our hearts. It's a replacing a hunger for God with the hunger for anything good. And this is what Piper's getting out. How much more deceptive is that, right? The triviality of the things we hunger for and are constantly taking in, right? A heart that hungers for the world turns and twists all of God's good gifts into little idols that we bow down to and serve, right? I have a field, I have to see it. I must go take care of my oxen. I just got married, I'm a little busy. Do you see, friends, how dark the flesh is? The very things God gives us, we, apart from the Spirit, are professionals at making them our masters professionals at making them our masters, right? We hunger for them, so we serve them. 
John Calvin famously stated that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Imagine that for a second with me. You have a massive factory, and out pops on the conveyor belts little idols, like little men with carved faces, maybe holding a bowl. Each is a little different. But underneath the idol, really the substance of the idol, what it's made up of is God's good gifts. Right? Sex, money, food. We're professionals at making idols out of God's good gifts. So how perverted is the flesh, my friends? We can be the ones who say, sorry, God. You know, I know you gave me all these things, all these good gifts, my house, my oxen, my land, my spouse, my phone, my golf, my books, my friends, but I'm a little busy with them. I can't come dine with you. I've got other things that are good. You even gave them to me. Apart from the Spirit, we are so easily allured from the one who satisfies our souls, right? It's a constant snacking that leads us to miss out on the feast. We're too busy getting a buzz from our phone that we miss out on time with God and prayer. We're like the kid on Christmas that receives a present from their parents and in pride and selfishness forgets his parents ever existed. And friends, Jesus died so that we might have him. Remember 1 Peter 3. Jesus died to bring us to God. Our idolatry nailed him to the cross. So friends, we must repent. We must repent. We need to hate it, see it for what it is. We need to see it for what it is. But in the Lord's kindness, right, as always, God has given us a grace means of grace to help us fight in the power of the Spirit. And if we ignore this grace, we will become malnourished Christians. And what is that? That's fasting. Fasting. Point number three, fasting as a feast. Turn with me. We'll look a little bit deeper at this text. Turn with me to Matthew 6, 16 through 18. So Matthew 6, 16 through 18. It will also be up on the screen. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So fasting as a feast. In the discourse of Matthew 6, Jesus gets really practical, right? He, in this address, we'll see a lot. He addresses prayer, giving, fasting, wealth, which we covered last week, anxiety. But he also goes deeper. He cuts to the heart. And so I want to look at a couple things, three things about this text. First, fasting is a necessary part of the Christian life. Fasting is a necessary part of the Christian life. Catch this. Jesus doesn't say at the beginning, he doesn't say when you, or, I'm sorry. Jesus says when you fast, not if you fast. When you fast, not if you fast. This isn't optional. So we must assume that we as Christians are called to fast. This is a mandatory grace of the Christian life. It's a mandatory gift, not an optional one. Jesus knows what it takes to live a perfect life, a perfectly righteous life. If you remember in preparation for his ministry and to fulfill all righteousness, Jesus, a few chapters back, fasted and prayed for 40 days. And friends, Jesus fasted. How much more do we need to fast? So do you treat the command to fast as an if or a when? As optional or mandatory? Do you treat it as a gracious command of our Father for our flourishing? A man named Edward Farrell, speaking of the decline in fasting in the late 1900s, writes, Almost everywhere at all times, fasting has held a place of great importance. 
since it is closely linked with the intimate sense of religion. Perhaps this is the explanation for the demise of fasting in our day. When the sense of God diminishes, fasting disappears. And I believe this is still could be argued for our generation, the modern American church, right? We've lost sight of our need for God, of the fear of God. There is no sense of God. We are comfortable. We have everything we need. You're familiar with the letter to the Laodiceans, right? Neither hot nor cold. But if you read down further in the letter, he, there's this <laughs> mind-boggling scenario where Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone answers and comes and hears my voice and comes, I will come in and dine with him. Well, that verse is often used for evangelism, but he's actually writing that to a church. Do we even recognize Jesus not being in the room because we're so distracted and so busy with our oxen, our fields, all the good gifts God has given us? Would we realize he's not in the room and he's on the outside knocking? Right? We're so easily distracted by shiny things. So friends, let us not fall into that trap. Let us not fall into that trap. And fasting also gets easily lost in the sea of good intentions. Right? There's a possibility today that you're going to leave this room feeling more informed about fasting, maybe feeling some sense of like, okay, I need to do this, but it fades about as fast as your resolution was for going to the gym, right? The word of God does not give us that option. Jesus does not give us that option. It's a mandatory gift, right? It's a when, not an if. And then second, we, we can fast for the wrong desires, right? So fasting like any other spiritual discipline can be done for the wrong desires. Our fasting can be merely a face to satisfy our idolatrous hearts. Look again at Matthew 6, right? First type of fasting that uh, Jesus addresses. They're fasting that they might be seen and ultimately admired by others, right? Jesus addresses the practice of the religious in the day who, while doing religious things, are doing them to receive the praise of men. They want everyone to see what they do. This is a recurring theme if you read through the text earlier. They want people to see them. Not in a way that like, oh, they see me so that they can be encouraged and edified, but rather so that praise can be heaped on our head, right? We get a pat on the back because we fast. This is what they're going for. And he puts a spotlight on them. And Jesus says, they get a reward, right? They get a reward. What is that reward? They get the praise of others. That's it, right? They get the praise of others. Early in chapter six, Jesus uses the same parallel when talking about giving to the needy. And there he makes it explicit that the hypocrites do it to be praised by others. It's implied here as well. They want to be revered by the people, people to look at them as spiritual. They get the applause of people, get a pat on the back. They get their reward, right? It's like the person who rejects the presence on Christmas morning because they think their parents and their friends will be impressed by their maturity. They'll get the admiration. They get it. And guess what, friends? It's a judgment as well, right? It never satisfies. It's temporary. It's fleeting. The approval of man always never satisfies. So if you do fast or are now planning on fasting, why are you doing it? Now, there are plenty of reasons to fast, right? Not all bad. Intermittent fasting is hip right now, right? That's good. Take care of your body. But your lost neighbor can do that. And there are the spiritual fasts that are not Christian at all. You think of your spiritual friend or your Hindu, right? They can do that fast. They can just deprive themselves of food, Right? For them, it's to earn spiritual points, kind of bribe, bribe their God into doing what they want, to earn favor. And these are not biblical fast at all, in the slightest, as in this type of fasting, the biblical mandate to fast. So why will you fast? 
Is it to earn the admiration of others? Maybe you're trying to earn the pleasure of God. Don't get me wrong. True fasting does please God, but it pleases him because it's done out of a hunger for him, out of place of having Christ through the work of Christ and by the Spirit, not because we are trying to earn our spot in his presence or trying to bribe him. That's all the difference in the world, right? We're not trying to earn an answered prayer from God. We're not treating God like a vending machine, right? We put in the coin of fasting and out pops our answered prayer. That's not fasting. So friends, why do you fast? Well, third, Jesus gives us the answer as to why we should fast. Third, fast to feast on God. Fasting is to feast on God. And it's a gift from God. Look at verses 17 through 18. Verses 17 through 18. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you. So in contrast to the hypocrites, Jesus is saying is to fast for the Father and you will be rewarded. What is the reward? I think we're clued in by the nature of the comparison. If it's for man's praise, guess what? You're going to get it. But if you're doing it to be with God, if you're doing it for God, because you hunger for God, if you're hunger for the Father, what is the reward? First and foremost, God himself. God is good enough to give us himself because that is the best thing we need, the only thing we ultimately need. He is a good father who has given us fasting as a gift that we might enjoy him. So the reward here that Jesus is talking about is first and foremost God himself. Friends, what we hunger for is what we get, right? If we hunger for the things of man, if we hunger for the praise of man, we'll get it. If we hunger for God, in Christ, for those who have repented and believed, we have the privilege of getting God himself. And notice what's lacking here. In Matthew 6, in this text specifically, the circumstances around fasting are missing. He doesn't say when you're in a trial or when you're suffering or all these other things. Now, as we see in the rest of scripture, that is a reason to fast. That is a circumstance that is appropriate to fast and and pursue our need for God. But here it's missing. The context of like, okay, did something, are we fasting because someone's in trouble? I have a sin, I need to, whatever. Well, it's not here in this text. And why? And I think it's for this reason. I think it's because it puts the importance on getting God himself as first and primary, right? It's not even ultimately to receive the answered prayers. But you have this contrast that leads us into why do you fast? You fast because you hunger for God. You fast because you need God himself. We want God and then we need him to act. Primary is seeking his face. Secondary is seeking his hand, right? It places it in order. So why do we fast? Because we're like the kids on Christmas. We need to set aside a gift, a good gift of God for a moment in order to pursue the giver. We need to recalibrate our hearts, hit the reset button that exposes our hearts. Richard Foster writes this, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. This is a wonderful benefit to the true disciple who longs to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We cover up what is inside us with food in other things, right? So fasting uncovers us. It uncovers what we cover over with God's gifts. It uncovers what's hiding, why we obsessively eat, why we watch Netflix all the time or tap on our phone all the time. It affects our time, priorities, money, resets, relationships. We fast to recalibrate our hearts on true north, And as we feast on God, the lesser things will be put in their place, 
right? And we need God to intervene as well. As I said, the whole of Scripture gives us the context for we do fast when there are times of suffering, of trials, of sin that we need to defeat. Whatever it may be, those are good things, right? Time and time again, we see in Scripture that people of God fasted in times of need, both spiritual and circumstantial. Circumstantial. And I encourage you this week to, to go through and look at all the times when it talks about them fasting. To name a few, you see David fasting during affliction in Psalm 35. There's a fast proclaimed by Ezra when they needed safety to get back to the promised land after the ex- exile. Jesus fasts for 40 days in Matthew 5 in preparation for ministry and to fight Satan. The missionary movement was birthed in prayer and fasting in Acts 13 as Paul and Barnabas were set apart and sent out. Paul and Barnabas fasted and prayed concerning raising up elders in Acts 14, and the list could go on. Always and every time, it's the people of God humbling themselves before God, declaring that they need him more than anything else. So practically, what are are things to fast from? Well, first on the list, And the majority of time we see fasting in scripture, it's fasting from food, right? I do think the principle goes further than food, but food gets at the core of who we are, right? Contrary to common opinion, you will survive without Twitter, but if you do not eat, you will die, okay? Fasting gets at the core of who we are. It shows we need, we're dependent, we're not the ultimate source of all things. We have to eat to live. So when you take away food and you got this rumbling stomach, it does a lot. Paul, I mean, Piper in his book, which I encourage you to go read, Hunger for God, covers so many things that just the fact that hunger, what it does to us and how it affects us, right? When we want to cover it over with things, we want to run to food. Now, am I going to run to Instagram so that I forget my hunger? Am I going to run to God so that I forget my hunger, right? It's a reminder. I think Piper's the one who talks about it. It's, it's a reminder every time our stomach is rumbling. It's a reminder to pray, right? Why? Oh, I'm fasting. I need to be praying. Or every time our stomach is hungry, it's a reminder that we need God above everything else. So fast food is in particular, I would say. And I get it. Some cannot fast from food. You've got various medical conditions. That's a reality God understands that, right? He, he created you. There's other things to fast for. Another thing, this one's going to hurt a lot, coffee, right? Maybe put it in check for a time, fast from it. Uh, the Lord had me do this one recently. The Lord had me fast from coffee. It felt like maybe, a, well, I, in some ways, I was more dependent on coffee than I was on God to get me through the day. Like, I realized that because how often was I asking for help during the day versus just running and getting another cup of coffee? So the Lord convicted me of that, and I was fasting from coffee. Um, and on a side note, after doing that, I enjoy coffee so much more as a good gift from God, right? When we put it in the whole of the context, and it's not mastering over us, but it's submitted to God, it's way more enjoyable because it's in its rightful place enjoy coffee even more now. So you will see me drinking coffee. Um, Social media. That's a simple one. That's one that often is really helpful to reset our hearts, right? TV, sleep, your phone, right? If you're not sure if it has mastery over you, fast from it. That's what I encourage you. If you're not sure if it has control over you, Paul says all things are good, but not all the things I... I'm going to do. Why? I want nothing to have control over me. Nothing must be in control of over me except God himself. We must be the same. So test which hunger rules your life with fasting. Test them. If you're not sure, take a break. Fast from it. Seek the Lord. Right? In Matthew 6, Jesus didn't say, if you fast. He said, when you fast. Fasting is itself a gift to us. So when are you going to lay down the shiny new present in order to enjoy the giver of all good gifts, the one who satisfies your soul? Christopher, could you come up and uh, play in the background? And I encourage you to wrestle with this personally, right? We're going to take a minute here uh, just to repent of 
Maybe the lack of fasting. If this is an area where you're like, man, I have never faithfully, biblically fasted, I encourage you to repent of that. And then I encourage you this week, as you move forward, right, when you fast, how you fast, what you fast from, how long you fast, all those things, I encourage you to work through them in community, right? When Jesus is talking in Matthew 6 about letting it not be seen, it, the idea has nothing to do with it being seen by others because Jesus fasted and people saw he fasted. That's not what he's getting at. It's about doing it for the praise of other people. But all the time, there's, there's communal fast in the New Testament. So I encourage you to work with your D groups, your community groups, or your friend, and pray through, think through, and on your own, pray and think about when and how and what to fast from, right? Friends, this is a good gift from God, right? We'll be malnourished. We'll hurt and harm our own souls if we do not take and receive this gift with thankfulness. So let's take a moment just to put all this before the Lord, just asking the Lord um, <laughs> what he has for us, Maybe an area of conviction, maybe an area of praise for what God has done in your life already in fasting. Um, and then just asking the Lord humbly before him, what desires control my life? What do I need to fast from? And do I receive things with thankfulness? So let's do this, and then I'll end in prayer. God, uh, I think there's probably a lot of work you want to do in our hearts and as a church on this topic and these mere moments aren't enough. So Lord, I ask that you would continue to convict our hearts, my heart, our hearts, wherever there's an area that has mastery over us rather than Christ. Um, God, I thank you that you are the good shepherd who, who does feed your flock and you have prepared a banquet in the presence of our enemies. You will come and dine with us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would um, give us the encouragement and hope of that promise moving forward, that, Lord, all those who come to you will not be turned away, that there is a promise of a feast, Lord, and that we might use fasting as a means to pursue that feast. Lord, so would you convict us where there needs to be conviction? Give us wisdom and practicals of how to pursue this, Lord, for your glory, that the kingdom might go forward. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Love you, Risen Hope Church, and we will see you midweek or next week. You are dismissed.